Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're visiting today, it is our normal habit to walk through books of uh, the Bible. Uh, we're taking a little break here for about five weeks or so, and I've been here a year. This is, I think, a year from this Sunday, actually, since I first started. And um, it's really my desire to take these first few weeks of the year and just clarify some important things, primarily our mission, our method, and our membership. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. So if you are a guest, um, this is a good time for you to be here, just figuring out who we are and where we're going and uh, just looking forward uh, to this morning as we continue to gain clarity. Let me just say, I didn't bring one of these booklets up with me, but if you're not a member, you probably didn't receive in the mail one of our booklets describing mission, method, and membership. Those are available out there, out there. They're all around the church. Grab one of those and uh, be familiar with kind of what God's doing in our church. I was sitting at the breakfast table with my family on uh, Friday morning, and uh, we were talking about the book of Proverbs, and I was just sharing with my, with my kids about how the book of Proverbs, chapters one through nine, is really the father pleading with his son to walk in the way of wisdom. And by the way, when everyone, anybody ever says, well, you know, we don't know how to raise children, they don't come with a manual, that's the stupidest thing ever. They come with a manual, uh, it's called the Bible. And uh, particularly Proverbs is really important. The entire book is written from a father speaking to a son. And the father is pleading with the son to walk in the way of wisdom, just to walk with, with Jesus. And he says this, he says, if you choose the way of wisdom, it's the way of life and blessing. But if you choose the way of folly, it is the life of death and disaster and all throughout the book, just pleading with him to take the pathway, to take the way of wisdom, which as New Testament believers, we can read the book of Proverbs and know that the way of wisdom is the way of following Jesus Christ. And so we talked about that for a few minutes. And uh, then our two youngest girls had to quote a Bible verse in school. So they decided to practice their Bible verse. And so Josie is memorizing 1 Corinthians 13 at school. And she started at the end of verse 12, in which the apostle Paul, after talking about spiritual gifts, says this, let me show you a more excellent way. And 1 Corinthians 13 is the way of love. And then Annie goes and she's memorizing Psalm 1 and she said, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And all of a sudden I begin to think about how much the Bible talks about Christianity in terms of a way, in terms of a path, in terms of a life. I mean, Psalm 23 says Jesus the good shepherd leads us in the path of righteousness. You say, well, it doesn't say Jesus in Psalm 23. Well, it says the good shepherd, and John 10 says Jesus is the good shepherd. So Jesus is leading us in a path of, of righteousness. Isaiah 30, 21, the Lord says, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. You ever notice that when Jesus presents the gospel, you never one time hear him say, repeat these words after me. You know what he says? He says, come and follow me. You say, where's the faith in that? Well, the faith is, if you believe in Jesus enough to leave what you're doing and follow him, you have demonstrated faith. That actually is faith. To turn your life around and trust that Jesus is the way and begin to follow him. And so he goes to Peter and he says, Peter, follow me. He goes to James and Andrew and John and he says, follow me. The rich young ruler, he says, listen, Sell everything you have and come and, and follow me. Jesus looks at the crowds after he preaches and he says, if anyone wants to come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and, and follow me. That's the invitation of Jesus. That's the way Jesus presents the gospel. Think about the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus ends like any good sermon should end with an invitation. But his invitation is this. He says there's two ways to live. And at this point, you can choose which way you want to go. There is one way, and the gate is wide, and the way is easy, but it leads to death. There's also another way to live, and the gate is narrow. The path is difficult, but it leads to life. Then Jesus comes in John 14 and says, and by the way, I am that way. That, that small gate, that narrow way, I am that way. And if you want to come and follow me, you must choose that path. Jesus has always communicated the gospel this way. By choosing me, you're choosing a direction. You're choosing a life. You're choosing a pathway. You know, the people of God throughout Scripture are not known just for their moments of decision. They're not known for their moments of faith. Romans 1.17 says the righteous will live by faith. By faith. The Bible always talks about Christianity in terms of pathways and progress and life. But isn't it just incredibly interesting that as a church, we often tend to think about Christianity in terms of events and moments and decisions that make this decision, come to this moment, the Bible doesn't always speak about Christianity that way. It speaks about it in terms of embracing a life and a pathway and making progress. Now listen, we are right to call people to a decision. We have to. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Choose this day whom you will serve. And every Sunday, I call people to a decision. Choose today to trust that without Christ you will go to hell. You cannot save yourself. Trust in Jesus' death as the payment for your sins and come and follow him. We must call people to a decision, but we must not stop there. We can't just call them to a decision and leave it there. And truthfully, there's a lot of people that have left it there. And I think one of the greatest lies of the enemy, listen to this, the greatest lie of the enemy is that you can be a Christian without following Jesus. How many people do you know that call themselves a Christian, but they're not following Jesus? And Jesus would say, if you're a Christian, you demonstrate the authenticity of your faith by following me. Listen, Christianity is not something past tense, like, oh, I already did that. People think this way. No, I, I did that. No, it's not something you did, it's something you're doing. It is trusting what Christ has done for you. He has paid for your sins. He has made you right with God. He has caused you to be born again. Now, as a born-again believer in Jesus, you are embracing the new life of following Jesus Christ. This is a way in which Jesus is leading us. Now, last week we talked about our mission. Our mission is simply this, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. Leading people to trust and follow Jesus. This is our summary of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the mission. We're saying oh, that this is what it means to make disciples. To make disciples is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. Meaning, we're calling people initially, trust and follow Christ. This morning, give your life to Jesus. Trust him and follow him. And then we continue to do that over and over and over. The mission does not end when someone gets saved. Nor does the Great Commission 
It says, make disciples, make believers, and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Our mission is to continue to lead people in trust and follow Jesus. So our mission answers the question, what? What are we doing here? What What are we doing? What's the goal? That's it. That's what we're doing. God has assembled us that our work might lead people to trust and follow Jesus. But we have to answer another question. How? I think, I feel like in the churches I grew up in, that's the question that was missing. The, the, the question was, was what was easy? What are we doing? Well, we're leading people to Christ. That's great. What I want to know is this, how? How are we going to do that? And that is what we call our method. Our method. Our mission answers the question, what? Our method answers the question, how? And what we're calling this is our discipleship pathway. You can see that represented in our logo, our discipleship pathway. It is the pathway in which we want to lead people in order to make them disciples of Jesus Christ. What we say is this, our pathway is this. We want to lead people to trust and follow Jesus by, and here's our pathway, by equipping them to live a life of worship, a life in community, and a life on mission. Equipping people to live a life Upward life of worship, inward life in community, outward life on mission. Now, next week, I'm going to go in great detail on those three things, worship, community, and mission, talk about how those work. But this morning, I want to think a little bit broader and take those first few words and talk about this, that it is the church's responsibility, listen to me, it is the church's responsibility to equip people to live. We want to equip People to live a life. A life what? A a God-centered, Christ-exalting life of a disciple. The church needs to be able to say this. Okay, you've come to Christ, that's great. We want to give you a very clear pathway of what it means to continue to make progress. You do realize, right, that no one that comes to Christ knows what to do next. I I think we just assume they get it, like they know. They've made that decision. We've left them alone. What we're going to say is this. No, 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 no. What we're going to say to every member of Prince Avenue Baptist Church is this. We believe that following Jesus Christ means that, that you are engaging in a life of following him. We are going to lead you in that pathway of growing as a disciple. This is the role of the church. I want to show you that from Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we're going to read verses 1 through 16 in just a minute. Let me, let me set the context here. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul is speaking to Gentile believers who are concerned that they don't get all the blessings that the Jewish believers get. So Paul writes three chapters to them saying, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. We are one in Christ. And if you come to Christ, every blessing belongs to you. Every believer gets every blessing in the heavenly places. And he spends three chapters saying, here's who you are, here's who you are, here's who you are. Chapters four through six, he makes the transition to the application of that. So it's one thing to know who you are. It is another thing to walk in the reality of that. And Paul does something really neat, and it's intentional. In chapter one, verse four, he says this. He says, you have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So he lets them know that that they've been chosen in him. Then he comes back in chapter four, verse one, and says this, now walk in a manner worthy of your calling. God called you, now walk in it. And here we have again this idea of a walk. 
know who you are, and then walk in the reality of that. And then Paul talks about what it looks like to walk in this way. If you're there at Ephesians chapter 4, say amen. Listen as I read verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that it might fill all things. What he's saying is the one who came down is the one who also went back up. Jesus descended and then he ascended back. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I'm not gonna do a proper exposition of Ephesians chapter four. This deserves a lot of sermon. Those of you who know how long I often take on a verse are very worried about 16 verses here this morning. Uh, Someday, Lord willing, I'll preach through Ephesians. We'll get through all of it. Here's what I wanna do for you this morning. I wanna give you four words that summarize what this is saying and that show you the church's role in leading you in a pathway of discipleship. This is the church's responsibility and Ephesians 4 proves that, okay? Write down these four words. The first one is this. The first one is gathered, gathered. God is is gathering people and that's verses one through six, gathered. So, Paul is writing a letter, not to individuals. He's writing a letter to a church. So this is received by the church. The church, some leadership in the church then reads this to the church. And most likely it was then passed on to other churches as well. And so when they heard this, I think when we read scripture, we tend to always think about it just individually. This is just kind of the way we process things. This is not written to an individual. It's written to a group. And he says this, I want to urge you, church, church, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The context of your walking is in the context of the ministry of the local church. And then he gives all these qualities that need to be developed. And all of them are qualities that have to be developed in the context of a community. Humility. It's easy to be humble when you're alone. If you want to practice humility, you've got to be in the context of other people. 
gentleness and patience. Listen to this, bearing with one another in love, meaning sometimes you just have to bear with one another in love. Amen? It's true. So he's telling them to develop all of these qualities to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So again, in Ephesians 2, he says Christ has died to unify the body of believers. Then in chapter 4, he comes back and says, now work hard to maintain the unity Christ has purchased. The point of verses 1 through 6 is this. God's intention is to save you and then gather you with an identifiable group of believers in a local church. That sounds so simple, but it's amazing how often people think that they can walk with Christ outside of faithful membership in an accountable relationship with a local church. It was never God's intention to save you and have you live a life outside of the context of the local church. So I'll say to you what I say all the time, you don't have to join this church but you got to join some Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Christ-centered church that cares about your progress in the gospel. It's always been God's intention. The way in which we learn to live out the reality of the Christian life is through the context of the church. Where do we learn to be humble and gentle? Where are we forced to bear with one another in love? At home? Yes, but also in the context of the local church. So here's God's plan. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to gather you. All of the letters from Apostle Paul, except for exception, are written to identifiable groups of people, the church at Ephesus. This is an identifiable group of people. We'll talk about this in a couple weeks. You know who's in, you know who's out, you know who's apart, you know who's not apart. You must be an identifiable part of the body of Jesus Christ within the context of a local church. This is God's plan. Let me tell you something, even taking it a step further. The primary way that we know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ is by your faithful attendance and involvement in the church. I'll never forget it a sweet young single lady in my church in Dallas named Lori who I had known for five years and she'd been very involved and she came to me and talked to me about her struggle with assurance of salvation. That's something we don't talk about enough because a lot of people struggle with that. She said the saddest thing to me, she goes, I just lay in bed every night and just pray that prayer over and over and over. As if she's gonna get to heaven and God's gonna say, I'd love to let you in, but you missed a word on the prayer. Like you didn't say it just right. And I know you tried a bunch, but it's very clear in the gospel track, and you missed that word. Like somehow, if I say this magic prayer enough that I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, listen, at some point, you've got to call on the name of the Lord, but there is no magic prayer that gets you to heaven. It is choosing to trust and follow Jesus Christ. And let me tell you what I was able to do. Now, I can't know if anybody's saved, but what I was able to do is say this. Lori, the way in which we know someone is really a follower of Christ is by the evidence we see in their life. We see a desire for holiness and righteousness, a hunger and thirst. If someone's alive, they hunger and thirst. And I said, Lord, I've known you for five years. I have watched the way in which you love people. I have watched the way in which you sacrifice. I have watched your hunger and thirst for the things of God. Lord, I have no reason to question whether you know Jesus Christ or not. Like everybody that knows you senses the Spirit of God living inside of you. You need to trust in the good work of Jesus Christ and stop trusting in a prayer. Why was I able to say that? Because I knew her. 
She was there. And on the other side, I, how many times have I been, having call, been called to do a funeral of someone who was a member of the church but I hadn't seen in 15 years and they wanted me to get up and tell everyone that they walked with Jesus Christ when I had never even seen them. I knew nothing about them. God saved you to gather you with a local church. This is God's plan. He gathers you. Now, the next word is this. Gathered. The second word is gifted. Gifted. Gathered and gifted. So he's talking about the way in which he calls the body together. Then he does speak individually. He says this starting in verse 7. And this is really verses 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one. So yes, God gathers this group and he gathers it together. And we find our identity and in this group. But yet, God has gifted every single individual in the group. Grace was given. And that word grace is really a word that is used to refer to spiritual gifts. Grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he gives this beautiful picture in verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, listen to the picture. The picture is this. Jesus Christ, having completed his work on earth, ascends to the right hand of the Father where he sits. Now, here's the picture. Jesus ascends, but his work is not finished. He just intends now for his work to be continued through his church, which is called the body of Jesus Christ. Why are we called the body of Christ? Because that's what we are. Christ ascended. We are now the manifestation of the work of Christ on earth. But it says this, God knew that none of us individually look that much like Jesus. Jesus was perfectly and fully gifted in every way, with no sin, no deficiencies, fully God. But that's not us. So what does Jesus do? He ascends and says, I want my work to continue. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give gifts to every single member of the church so that when they all work together, every single person using their giftings, then that becomes a picture of Jesus Christ. It doesn't work individually. We only really manifest Jesus Christ when we use our giftings together. And he says, each one has been given one in verse 7. It also says they've been given according to the measure of Christ's gift, simply meaning, complicated language, but simply meaning this. Jesus did not ascend and take a spiritual gift pinata and hit it, and a bunch of gifts fall down, and we all go and grab the ones we want the most. So how it works. I mean, all of us would probably like to have maybe some gifts that we don't have, but Jesus didn't just randomly drop a bunch of gifts and you go grab the ones you think will be best. No, Jesus, listen, this is so encouraging for you, has sovereignly gifted every single individual according to what he knows you need and what the church needs. Which means you find incredible significance when you commit yourself to a local church. Use your gifts knowing that by yourself you can do a little. But if you really want to make a difference in your life and in the life of the church and the life of the community and the world, you gather with a group of people all gifted using their gifts to paint a picture of Jesus Christ. The context in which you use your giftings is the church. I like to think of the church like a puzzle. That there's just a lot of pieces 
and the pieces by themselves don't really seem so significant, but you put those pieces together and it shows something incredible. And by the way, if you have every piece but one, it doesn't work. Like you don't frame a puzzle where you're missing two pieces. And so there's a sense to think, well, my gift is insignificant. It's just one of many. Listen, without your gifting in the church, the church can't be what it needs to be. So he gathers and he gifts so that together the church might be the body of Christ. Let me give you the third word. Gathered, gifted, and guided. Yes, they're all going to be G's. I worked hard on this this week. Gathered, gifted, and guided. I didn't even have to stretch it too much, which is amazing. Guided is verses 11 through 13. So here's what happens. You see, he saves you, he gathers you, he gifts you. Then look at this in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In verse 11, when he talks about these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, he's not talking about offices, like the office of a pastor or the office of an apostle. The office of an apostle doesn't exist anymore. Are there still apostolic giftings in the sense of those who are, uh, I would say, like church planters and have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit? Absolutely. And it's also not referring to just those who have been paid by the church to do this. There are many of you who have these giftings to pastor, to teach, to shepherd, to love people, to encourage people, to charter new territory, all of that. And so what he's saying is he's also given the church people who are gifted for this purpose, listen, to equip the saints and build up the body of Christ. Now, that word, equip the saints, means this. It is a word that means to complete, to finish something, to take a process towards completion. The word gifting does not mean, I mean, equipping does not mean I'm just going to show you how to use your gift in the right way. No, no, no. It means I am going to guide you, to lead you, all the way until you've accomplished God's purpose in your life. And one of the ways we know that is because he adds to it the building up, verse 12, of the body of Christ. That word building up means the same thing, to bring closer to completion. That word is often meant in secular literature, assisting someone in constructing a building until it's done. So all of us come to Christ and we're just a mess, all right? And then we keep following Christ and we're still a mess. Do I have any amens? We're just a mess. And what we need in our life is people who are gonna help us and they're gonna notice our mess and they're gonna call us out on it and they're gonna notice our giftings and they're gonna call us out on it and all of that happens in a church and then you've got other people in the church who are saying this. Listen, I know you just came to Christ and you don't have a clue how to walk with Jesus. So here's what I wanna do. I want to guide you in a pathway that leads to spiritual maturity. That's the church's role. And look what it says. It says in verse 13, And we will do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So until we reach absolute maturity, until that moment, and if, if you've already reached there, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I know this is repetitive for you, but if you've already reached that, that's fine. But if for some reason you have not reached full and complete spiritual maturity, it is the job of the church to guide you in a direction until that day. To be guided, that's exactly what it talks about. Now, I love Romans 8.28 because it says that God has predestined us 
to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And I know some of you are all worried. I already used the word chosen and predestined in one sermon, and we're freaking out, all right? Let me tell you what the word predestined means, okay? Listen to this. Everybody, everybody gets freaked out on this word. It's very simple. Predestined means God has a predetermined plan. It's referring to a plan. God has a predetermined plan. What is God's predetermined plan? God's predetermined plan is that if he saved you, he now has a plan for you. What is that plan? To conform you, Romans 8, 28, to the image of Jesus Christ. His predetermined plan is to take those who are saved and actually make them look like Jesus. To enter into this process, this pathway in which you're being conformed moment by moment and ultimately looking more and more like Christ. Now, this is going to sound crazy. I know this is mind-blowing. But when you think about the way in which the church is to work, which is to guide people in a pathway that leads to spiritual maturity, listen to this. I know this is crazy. All I want to do is our job. That's it. Like I, all I want to do is the job that has been given the church. To say to you, there is a way to follow Christ, and we want to show it to you. And that's what our pathway is. Our pathway is to say to you, listen, we want to equip you. What that means is we want to come alongside of you and we want to walk with you until that moment in which God takes you home. And we want to see you become mature. And the way we're going to do that is this. We're going to lead you in an upward life of worship. We're going to leave you in an in, uh, lead you in an inward life of community and an outward life of mission. Because we believe that if those areas are not growing, you're not a growing disciple of Jesus Christ. He gathers, he gifts, and he guides. And give you the last word, it is this. Growing. Growing. Gathered, gifted, because the gift comes down, guided, and then growing. And that's verses 13 through 16. What is the goal of all of this? Well, it says that we might attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, until we look completely like Jesus, which we will someday. Not on this side of eternity, but we will someday. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part, individual, is working properly, it makes the body grow. So listen to this. Listen to me. What he says to you individually is this. Grow up. Grow up. Make progress. Walk with Jesus. Walk the pathway. Follow Jesus. And here's what's crazy. When individual members of the church grow up, the church begins to grow. The body grows. He says when you grow up, it leads the body, it makes the body grow. So, to, so that it builds itself up in love. The goal is growth and progress and maturity. I, throughout my ministry, it's funny, I, I've noticed that every year, Multiple times I get asked this question by somebody visiting. And, and, and here's the question. Are you one of those pastors that's all about church growth? Now I get the question because I know that some of you may have been in a church previously where it was, we have one desire, we just want to get as many people in the church as we can get. We just want to fill every seat. It doesn't matter who they are or what they're doing and we don't even care what we're going to do with them. We just want them here. We want to make ourselves feel better by growing the church. And so I get that and I understand there is a negative side to that. But I just need to say 
without any reservation or hesitation, I am all about church growth. I mean to my very core, I am all about church growth. What do I mean by that? What I mean is I want you to grow so the church grows. Does Jesus want the kingdom to grow and more people to be saved? Does Jesus want believers to grow? Jesus is all about growth. That we would grow the church by making new disciples and then continue to grow the church by growing those disciples. The Great Commission is all about church growth. Make disciples and then grow them and teach them to observe all I've commanded you. Our mission is to lead people to trust and follow Christ, to grow the church. Week after week, we should see the baptisms we saw this morning. Every week, new believers coming and giving their life to Jesus Christ. But then we must say, we want to take you and grow you. I have people say to me sometimes, well, I'm not about church growth. I'm about church health. That's like going to your pediatrician and saying, now listen, I would love to choose you as a pediatrician, but I need to know first, are you about my child's growth or my child's health? Because if you're just concerned with my child's growth, then you're not the right guy for us. To which the pediatrician would say, if your child is healthy, it's growing. And if it's not growing, it's not healthy. You don't make that distinction. Listen, a healthy church is a growing church. God has called us to growth. If we are not growing the church and growing people, we are not a faithful, great commission, Christ-centered church. So when we talk about this disease of discipleship pathway, what we're saying is this. Here is a way for you to make progress. And, and I'm gonna talk more next week, but let me just say this. How this is gonna work is this. We're then, listen, going to take every single thing we do as a church and make sure it fits in with that pathway. We are not gonna plan events or have anything that does not lead you either in a life of worship, a life in community, or a life on mission. We want to get as focused as we possibly can. Now the truth is, this, this does sound quite simple, and it should be simple. But what I'm saying to you is really a shift in thinking. You see, the role of the church is not to keep you busy. The role of the church is not to plan enough programs and events to fill up your calendar. That's not the role of the church. And, and some of you may think, well, listen, if the church, if the staff isn't here every night and if there's not something on the calendar every night, listen, our goal is not to keep you busy. Our goal is to help you grow. What that means is, is that the health of our church is not seen by how much is on the calendar. It's by how strategic we are in that every single thing we ask you to do matters for your spiritual progress. I wanna ask you to do things because I believe it fits into what God wants to do in your life to grow you as a follower of Jesus Christ, which means we're gonna look at every program in every area of ministry and we're gonna ask this question, is it growing disciples? And if not, we're not gonna do it. We're not gonna do it. We're gonna do the things that grows disciples. Is it leading you to love Jesus more in a life of worship? Is it leading you to develop in community and love one another? Is it leading you to obey the Great Commission and make other disciples? That's how we're gonna determine what we do moving forward. And I think about our logo again. 
this idea that the whole goal of this was not to look better, but to be able to say to you that you can take a pencil and in one moment you can take that logo on the left and you can take those arrows and say, let me tell you what our mission is. Our mission is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. Then you can go to the outward little parts there and you can say, and let me tell you how we're gonna do that. We're gonna do that by leading you in an upward life of worship. If you can go to the next slide, an upward life of worship, an inward life in community and an outward life on mission. We can describe to you our mission and our method with that. You should be able to sit down with any person and say, let me tell you about Prince Avenue Baptist Church. Here's what we do and here's how we do it. And we would love for you to jump in and be a part of what God's doing. But the issue this morning is this, and I'll be done. That it all flows from an understanding that being a Christian is about trusting and following Jesus. I just want to ask, are you doing that? Like, is your life a manifestation of trusting Jesus and manifesting that trust by following him? Are you making progress? Are you on that pathway of discipleship? Listen, are you gathered? Do you have a body of believers that you're accountable with? Are you a member of a church? You've got to make that decision. Are you being guided? Are there shepherds and pastors, evangelists that are watching over you and making sure you're making progress? Are you growing? God wants to lead you. And the greatest act of faith, listen, is believing this, that there is no greater life in all of the world than the life of following Jesus. And every other life is worthless in comparison. So because I believe Jesus is greater, I will give myself to following him. I pray. Somehow by God's grace and for his glory, you would choose to say Jesus is better. I will follow him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.